One of the most acrimonious debates around the COVID-19 pandemic has been whether it was a natural spillover from an animal source, such as a bat, or an accidental release from a laboratory, such as the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where they'd been performing potentially dangerous genetic manipulations of coronaviruses, and they'd been doing it with overseas colleagues. In a new book called Dark Winter, global expert in infectious disease, epidemiology and biosecurity, Professor Ryan McIntyre, warns that we've got to get better at identifying disease outbreaks as natural or unnatural, especially since new technologies may make unnatural, human-made pandemics far more likely. Rhino also argues that doctors and researchers may be too conflicted to be trusted and that intelligence and law enforcement services may have better tools and training to uncover the truth. Welcome back to The Health Report, Rhino. Thanks, Norman. One of the themes in the book is recognising unnatural from natural outbreaks. What are the features of what you call an unnatural one? And it's not necessarily sinister, but sometimes it is, and you've got examples in the book. But what are the features of something that's unnatural, therefore presumably human-made? So there are two main types of unnatural epidemic, and one is deliberate release or biological warfare, bioterrorism, and the other is an accidental release, like from a laboratory leak. And there's numerous examples of both throughout history and this common theme of inability to recognise an unnatural outbreak. Especially hard if it's a highly contagious pathogen because once it starts, it's hard to tell because it spreads easily and you really need forensic and intelligence-type investigations to understand the origins of epidemics. Whereas if you're following the debate around COVID origins, you'd think the only answer was in phylogenetics or very basic epidemiology when there's actually a lot more information that's needed and also the standard of proof is different for scientists versus, say, law enforcement professionals. We'll come back to that in a second. But you do describe the kind of features that would raise alarm bells, particularly early on, that this might not be as it seems. It's easier to see red flags for a pathogen that's not highly contagious because in that case, if it's a deliberate attack, for example, you might see multiple releases and it may look like it's very contagious, but actually it's not. On the other hand, for certain types of pathogens, if you see a particular clinical picture, so things like tularemia or anthrax, if you see inhalational or pneumonic forms of that infection, that's a pretty strong signal that it, it could be unnatural. Because it's not, the, it's not the normal way that anthrax or tularemia would show themselves. That's right. Natural anthrax will normally present as a cutaneous lesion. So if you're seeing a large number of inhalational anthrax cases in, in the lungs, then you have to suspect that there is an unnatural cause. But as I explained in the book in the Soviet Union, there was a massive leak of weaponized anthrax from their bioweapons factory and huge numbers of inhalational anthrax and deaths. But they denied that it was unnatural and everybody agreed with them. Well, including the United States and US yeah. allies. Yeah, not the intelligence people, by the way, just the health experts. Let's just describe a couple of these outbreaks. So there's the one at Sverdlovsk, which is the one you're talking about, which is the infamous anthrax outbreak. There's another one which was a series of salmonella outbreaks in the United States, which one lone American senator said this was deliberate and the Rajneesh 
and he was holed down. Yeah, that's a really interesting outbreak and it's one that I use in my teaching as well because unlike most of the other outbreaks that I talk about in the book, there wasn't any government involvement, there wasn't any lab leak, it wasn't like somebody's neck was on the line. In other words, Yet, there was no reason to be defensive. Yeah, and the truth is that cult... Um, well, wait, before you go into the cult, just describe <laughs> the outbreak. Sure. So it was September in a city in the west coast of the US and all of a sudden people start getting gastro. People start getting very ill with gastro. It ends up being salmonella, which is a common cause of gastro outbreaks. But there were over 700 cases and at the time that was the largest ever outbreak of salmonella seen in the US. And it turned out that everyone who got sick had eaten out at a restaurant, except they'd eaten out at over 10 different restaurants a classic outbreak investigation was done and the public health authorities, which included the local health authorities and the CDC, determined that it was unsanitary food handlers that caused the outbreak in over 10 restaurants, despite the fact there was no common ingredient involved and the sanitation was actually okay when they inspected all the restaurants. So for them to come up with that conclusion flew in the face of the facts and then there was this politician Jim Weaver, who said, I think the Rajneeshis did it, and he was aggressively shouted down and called crazy, and he tried to go to the media, and he was ridiculed even more. And six months later, the cult leader, Sri Bhagwan Rajneesh, confessed that his cult had done this, and he wasn't even believed. So that's how hard it is to prove an unnatural outbreak when even a confession isn't believed. And then 12 months later, quite by accident, the FBI was doing an immigration raid on the Rajneesh's ranch and stumbled upon their lab. And it contained the exact outbreak strain of the salmonella that caused the outbreak, which was actually a very unusual strain, not one that had usually been seen. And then there was the outbreak, the 1977 Russian flu pandemic. That's an interesting one as well. So that was a pandemic of influenza, which was due to an H1N1 type virus. And there were questions at the time about unnatural origin because it had an unusual genetic signature for temperature sensitivity, which is usually something you see in engineered viruses, particularly when you're trying to make live attenuated flu vaccines. That's one of the ways to attenuate them so that they can't survive at higher temperatures. And so they're not as pathogenic. But that was also shouted down and the same old, same old animal theories, you know, oh, it emerged from animals, oh, it emerged from frozen corpses in the tundra, all kinds of theories, the same theories that we hear over and over again with these outbreaks. And that was a narrative for 30 years. And it's now accepted that that was a result of a lab leak, either from the Soviet Union or China, which were both doing research to develop live attenuated flu vaccines at the time. And they both did see cases around the same time, so it could have arisen from both. A recurrent statement in the book in many ways is that you don't trust doctors and medical researchers in outbreak studies. You trust law enforcement more and the military more. I do, because the way they approach the question is actually the correct way because they're trained in intelligence gathering and investigation in a very different way that scientists are trained. So the standard of proof is different. The problem is that in medicine and in science, we're not trained to even ask the question, is it natural or unnatural? 
and we're not trained in how you go about ascertaining that. And really, you have to look at a broad scope of evidence. It's exactly how the police would investigate a homicide, for example. They would look at all the evidence. You'd have to look at all the available epidemiologic evidence, the genetic evidence. The and human behaviour. Yeah, the political and human landscape and what was going on, what the possible motives were. In the case of the Rajneeshis, it was that they wanted to control a local election and they'd planned to poison everybody in the town so only their cult members would vote and they could control the local council and win on a particular land issue they were having conflict with. You know, to think about motives and investigate from that perspective, it's not a skill that we have as medical professionals, etc. But what you describe in the book is that the law enforcement officials who have a suspicion are often convinced by the doctors that they're wrong. Yeah, because when you're talking about biological threats, law enforcement or intelligence agencies may have a couple of PhDs in immunology who work in there who give them advice, but they don't have the kind of expertise that is in a CDC or a health department or or a major research institution. So they do have to turn to scientific experts for advice. And therein lies the biggest problem, because when it comes to unnatural outbreaks, particularly lab leaks, there is obviously a vested interest in the people who would know the most in denying the possibility of lab leaks. So you're implying the conflict of interest is if they find this, it couldn't possibly be a lab leak, we've got great security in our lab, but if it was, it would threaten our research because we run labs like that? Is that what's going on here? That's right. And I give numerous cases of insider threat of scientists who were investigated for actual nefarious conduct. And it was so interesting that the medical research community just closed ranks and defended those people. And there's a real polarisation in the view of those incidents between law enforcement and medical researchers. And somehow that has to be bridged because they're completely different viewpoints. I think the issue is that every scientist thinks, oh, that they're but for the grace of God go I. And when they see someone being scrutinised and taken to task for breaching standard protocols, etc., um, it sends a shiver down everyone's spine. But it's got to, we've got to get it right because, as you and others have said, we are living in an acute period of pandemic potential. Even if you take the animal spillovers, we're encroaching on natural environments, we're exposed to animals that we wouldn't have necess- and viruses we wouldn't necessarily have been exposed to. There's just recent evidence this week about bats under stress responding in different ways in terms of their microbiome and so on. And there's... CRISPR, which is a gene editing technology that you could have somebody from ISIS sitting in a lab somewhere producing a variant of smallpox. And you talk about smallpox a lot in the book. How do we bring this together to get a more rational view of this incredibly risky world that we live in? My view is that the community needs to have a voice at the table. The community needs to be informed The community needs to understand in the same way that they understand about climate change and cybersecurity through personal experiences, through observing what's going on around them. You know, we've seen the power of the people in terms of achieving change and driving political change, for example, with climate change. And I think that's the only only way that we can mitigate this risk. It is an existential risk to humanity, the kind of technology that's available today and the lack of appropriate governance frameworks globally to manage that risk. And I think solutions will come from the community. I don't believe it'll come from scientists. And one of the things you talk about 
just coming talking about CRISPR and engineering viruses, is that once upon a time you could tell the age of a virus from how it evolved, at least in the beginning. Now with engineered viruses, they can be made to look old in a sense. It's not that they're made to look old. It's that we get what we call gain-of-function research, which is where you take a virus from nature and you make it unnatural. You confer on it unnatural properties, enhance its transmissibility, enhance how dangerous it is, etc., by passing it over and over again through an animal species. And we have humanised mice. Those are mice that have the same receptors as human beings do in their respiratory tract. So when you can't experiment on human beings with dangerous viruses, you can do it in humanised mice. We have ferrets that are also a good model for humans for some viruses like influenza. So you passage these viruses over and over and over again in a ferret or a humanised mouse and you basically make it evolve and adapt to that species, which is in this case is a humanised species. So you're adapting it for transmissibility in humans and then the resultant virus looks like it's natural because it hasn't had bits cut out of it and inserted into it. It's like evolution speeded up millions of times its natural speed in a laboratory. When you do that, the resultant virus, when you analyse it on a phylogenetic tree, looks like it's been around for years. And when you see scientists saying, oh, you know, we've just discovered this brand new version of the Omicron virus, for example, this is a hypothetical example, and it looks like it's been around for three years must have been hiding in an animal or frozen or, you know, that's a red flag that this is a result of gain of function research. So when you see that that's a highly contagious virus, mysteriously suddenly appears, but it supposedly has been around for years and years, well, you would have noticed it if it was highly contagious and had been around for years and years. So those are the sort of new ways that, say, intelligence agencies need to think about origins of viruses. But sometimes they won't have much time to do it in an acute situation. Well, in an acute situation, you need a public health response to control the situation. So test, trace, quarantine, isolation. Yeah, yeah. The investigation can happen simultaneously and you may not get to the answer straight away. And even if you do get to the answer, it may be suppressed. And I think we've seen that with COVID, with the US intelligence agencies and others, for example, not agreeing and then, you know, initially by February 2020 saying that it was definitely a natural outbreak. Now, how could anybody possibly know that in February 2020? So they started off being sceptical that it was a natural outbreak and then changed their minds. Well, I I think there were political dimensions to it because a lot of the research that happened in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which was, you know, a major coronavirus laboratory right near the markets where this outbreak was first detected, there were collaborators from the US. There was funding from the US, funding for the EcoHealth Alliance, which was then funding these projects there. So I think because there was funding of a lot of this research from the US, that was the political dimension. And so you believe that we've ignored the signs that COVID-19 could have been an unnatural outbreak? I think there's been a narrative out there and counter-narratives. It's interesting, you know, you sort of watch the literature and every time there's some bit of research that supports an unnatural outbreak, then there's a flurry of papers, often with no real new knowledge, supporting a natural origin and 
these tend to get front page New York Times stories. Well, of course, we don't know for sure. And anyone who tries to present uncertainty as certainty, you've got a question. The book's called The Dark Winter, but you talk about the biological winter. If you take, if you like, a dark view of the future, what does the biological winter look like? It's where we never get the governance of this technology right. And so the rights of scientists take precedence over the rights of the community and quite dangerous research, both official and unofficial, goes on. And, you know, I talk about do-it-yourself biology and some of the kind of crazy stuff we're seeing on the do-it-yourself science scene. Including in Australia. Yeah, and people injecting themselves with CRISPR-Cas9 live-streamed, etc., So this technology has, you know, the cost has decreased dramatically, exponentially, and the accessibility is so easy and the methods are open sourced. You know, people publish the methods in scientific journals that anyone can look at and reproduce. The technology is just so accessible now. So I think we could be living in a world where these viruses and pathogens keep emerging, many of them man-made, that are coming at too fast a rate for us to keep up and develop drugs, vaccines, etc., which is quite a scary prospect. Is the genie already out of the bottle or is there a way of controlling this? Yeah, I think there is a way of mitigating the risk for sure. But it really needs those two communities in intelligence and law enforcement and science and medicine to come together and find some kind of common ground and way of moving forward in the interests of humanity. And I think it needs the community to have a voice at the table. And that doesn't mean having a consumer rep on an ethics committee. Even the way we do medical ethics is not fit for purpose for the threats we're facing. Much of the research I'm talking about happens in animals. So that would go to an animals ethics committee, which doesn't consider harm to human beings. So if there's a lab leak and someone in another country dies because of contagion, that person never consented to that research, was never informed about that research, it really does open a whole other category of ethical consideration. So you're hoping that the book will mobilise? Yeah, I'm hoping people in the community, you know, it's written for lay people, it's written in simple terms to convey what the threats are that we face, showing historical examples to show it's not just crazy conspiracy theory, this is very real, in the hope that people can empower themselves with knowledge and have a voice in how we regulate and manage the risks. Because you know, a lot of this technology is essential medical technology and we need the technology, but there are substantial risks associated with it as well. At the moment, we're just looking at the good side and completely ignoring the risks. The book's called Dark Winter. You should read it. It's by Rhina McIntyre, who's Professor of Global Biosecurity at the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales, and it's published by New South, which is part of the University of New South Wales publishing enterprise. Rhina, thanks as always. Thanks so much, Norman. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.